0: All right, yeah. thank you so much, Dean Matthew, for the generous introduction. Um, and thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. It's fantastic to see a, a good number of people, even on a kind of a dreary, dark yeah, winter evening. You so, don't thanks for being here in person. Um, so, this is the, the second meeting of this same panel. Uh, we met once before in late November of 2020, just after the, the presidential election in the United States. And the the title then was uh, the US election a crisis of legitimacy. And we examined um, the outcome of the election with I guess the centerpiece being Trump's denial of the outcome, right? Trump's insistence that actually the election had been stolen, uh, that, that Democrats had perpetrated a fraud on the people of the United States of America. And that was a short step really from the content of the 2020 Republican National Convention which um, I think is pretty remarkable. I don't know how many people in the room watched the convention or read the transcript, but it was pretty remarkably far right. Um, Almost so far right that you don't really recognize it, the the remarks in the convention, as traditional conservatism or as really uh, dignified in the sense that Republicans often used to kind of hold the mantle in that sense of being traditional, dignified, civil, um, standing for sort of where we came from, right? Um, and in that, in that 2020 National Convention, they described the Democrats as socialists, uh, looters, <laughs> and threats to Western civilization. Uh, they described Trump as the guardian uh, and savior of Western civilization and when he came down that golden escalator uh, reluctantly giving up his gilded age existence <laughs> in his penthouse to serve the American people, he took on that uh, that tremendously meaningful role, right, of, of safeguarding literally, they said, Western civilization from the socialist onslaught. Um, and they don't mean uh, democratic socialists, right? They mean actual Soviet style, East German style socialists. Um, so that, that was a context, right, of, um, of lies and polarization and, and that feed on each other in um, kind of an exponential way. Because if you believe the opposition are really terrible people who want to destroy the fabric of society and take away everyone's liberties and rights, um, and, and if you believe that sort of thing about them, right, that they have no commitment to democracy, rather they aim... To instill a despotic government that would control everything, then it's quite easy from that standpoint to say, "Well, of course, you know, they stole the election." You know, they would, they would do anything. So you've been primed to accept someone's word for something, even in the absence of evidence. Uh, and of course, that tag teams with the social media era, which is really, really different from reading a newspaper um, with, you know, a cup of tea. Because on social media, we're connected with our team. Right. We're connected with our friends, um, with people of similar ideologies, with contacts we've made in similar circles throughout the world or throughout our countries. And we are motivated by support and uh, praise, the likes, the agreement. And they've done numerous studies now that confirm that even when people know the truth, they would often rather tweet or post something that is sensational and false because it gets them more likes. Um, It gets them more notice and attention. And that's what people are craving, belonging, identity, relevance in the social media realm. So the rise of social media is uniquely positioned, I think, to interact in a really dangerous way with polarization. Um, And then when polarization, of course, is launched from one of the two major parties, not a fringe party, but a mainstream party becoming a fringe party, Right? when it's launched from on high by, by the President of the United States, broadcast by other, uh, by other party officials, purging those in the party who won't toe the line and repeat the lies, that sort of combination right, becomes uh, really, really toxic. And the other piece of... There's many pieces of this puzzle, of course. But another really big one, and this relates to why democracies are failing in countries around the world, is um, another combination of two things. Economic insecurity and cultural backlash. So um, in democracies around the world, there's rising economic inequality. There's a greater divide between the haves and the have-nots. Concentration of wealth at the top, um, uh, weeding out of middle class, a thinning of the middle class, and a concentration of lower-income people who have little economic stake. Right. Uh, So when people feel that economic insecurity, it's been shown um, in uh, Brazil, uh, Hungary, Um, India, the United States. It's been shown that they're more likely, uh, Greece I think as well, to back um, populist, any liberal sorts of claims. You want change, right? You're doing worse off than your parents. Um, Your expectations for for future generations is that their life is gonna be even worse than yours. And so you're put in this psychological place of demanding extreme change and being willing to tolerate uh, rule of law type violations because it's necessary for change. And now the other thing that occurs is when you're in a position of economic deprivation and you're falling behind others in society, and you can look out and see that, you become um, needy for uh, answers that don't suggest that it's your fault. So you become needy for scapegoating kinds of answers, for ego and group affirming explanations of why the country's falling apart. So Trump and other illiberal populists have been really, really perceptive in capitalizing on those twofold sort of psychological needs of people to affirm their egos. Hey, it's not your fault, it's the Mexicans. It's it's the uh, Islamic people. It's the China flu, you know, whatever. So you you affirm the ego of your supporters and you affirm the identity of their groups. This is uh, magnified on social media, broadcast from on high, and under all of those conditions, when your leader tells you the election's been stolen, it's like, it's not really, your reaction isn't to say, what, you're kidding, is to say, of course, right? Of course it has, because they'll stop at nothing, you know, and look where the country is, right? And so w- the, the title, right, of our talk, you know, Biden's rise, Trump's de- demise, I had a question mark on the end of that title, which I think got lost in the email chain. <laughs> so it's supposed to be Biden's rise, Trump's demise? <laughs> uh, and um, that's a good point. You know, so when you look substantively at how Biden's done in these first hundred days, uh, I've seen plenty of comparisons now from presidential historians to FDR, um, and saying that nobody has done more substantively in the first hundred days uh, than Biden, except FDR. Only, only FDR. And there are a bunch of really good articles now. If uh, if you all are you know want, uh, maybe you already have it all down. But if you Google Biden's first 100 days, there's a ton of articles detailing all the things he's done right? to restore human rights and sanity in terms of immigration, in terms of gender, in terms of race. He's done a lot, obviously, on climate change already, rejoining the relevant international agreements. He's done a lot to try to repair foreign relations and held a ton of meetings um, with high-level officials. Of course, there's the infrastructure plan. Uh, Of course, there's the COVID relief package massive public investment that people are comparing to the new deal and saying you know again with fdr there's no other precedent for what biden's up to except uh, the new deal Um, and i have in the back of my notes you know later if you want to talk about other things he's done there's a really long list and it's it's quite impressive Um, he's planning now of course to tax corporations and the wealthy at a more fair or rational rate but that yet hasn't been accomplished i think that would be huge as well to to respond to economic inequality but the broader point I think I want to make by adding that question mark is that U.S. politics is not at a highly rational, substantive, um, analytical place, right? So Biden could be highly, highly successful on the merits of public goods, public health crises, global environmental crises, inequality crisis, racism, sexism crises, transgender. transgender, right? he's restored the rights of transgender people to serve in the military, for example, Biden has. Uh, But I don't think that 2022 and 2024 are necessarily going to be about the issues substantively. I think, and this is the Republican Party's um, gamble or bet or strategy, is that 2022 to regain the House and 2024 to put Trump back into the presidency is going to be a function of... you want to call it, procedure, worldview, ideology, fascism, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's not the merits. It's not a uh, political community of equals debating the issues in good faith on the basis of evidence in a respectful way. That is out of the picture. Now, uh, I was reading some political science on this. Um, uh, Professor Mettler has a really good quote on um, the state of polarization which is now lost in my long document here. What what Mettler says is that um, political polarization got much worse starting in the 1990s, and the Southern Democrats lost lost, uh, their role to to Southern Republicans, and that this is the crucial part, that political polarization involved in the United States since the 1990s a move far to the right for the Republican Party, while the Democratic Party stayed relatively where it was all along. So political polarization in the United States, according to her and a number of studies and books that she cites, is a rightward movement. Uh, And so, you know, it's not this, it's this. Now, with with Trump, you know, when you look at illiberal democracies, attacks on the free press, attacks on minorities, attacks on judicial independence, attacks on the separation of powers, uh, undermining of, of facts and mainstream media, that is a move far right beyond the limits of what advanced democracy tolerates. When you move past a certain point, you're simply no longer an advanced democracy. You're, you're simply outside of the historical trajectory of political liberalism. You're, you're beyond it. So you're not far right on a democratic spectrum. You're starting to loop around to go to an, uh, an undemocratic form of government. And I think you know, if you say, what are the elements of democracy and what's the key element there, it's got to be free and fair elections by universal suffrage without obstacles. So, when I say that, I don't think that the issues in 2022 and 2024 are going to be as much about substance as they are about procedure. What I mean by that are the voting rights restrictions that are in the works. When you think back to Trump's election in 2016, it was incredibly close, right? He, he lost the popular vote by 3 million, and he prevailed by a margin of 0.2 or 0.3% to 1.2% in the key states to win the electoral college. So he won the Electoral College by votes that were in the thousands, just the thousands, in really large places right now. So how did he do that? Um, one, I mean, obviously he had a pretty good electoral appeal and he had some pretty good talking points about Hillary Clinton and the Democrats and Wall Street and corruption. But the other way he did that was by benefiting from the, public, uh, from the Republican Party's previous, um, previous efforts at voting rights restrictions, which had been successful. So when Obama won in 2008 and was reelected in 2012, the Republicans learned this really hard lesson about voter turnout. And their response in numerous states was really swift. Um, they, they decreased voting, uh, they, they decreased hours at the polling stations, they moved polling stations away from diverse neighborhoods, um, they increased voter ID requirements, and they did a bunch of other things as well. Uh, They made it harder to vote um, by mail and stuff like that.
1: purged the voter. The
0: voting lists that were purged. That was another big one. I saw that firsthand in Georgia Mm. as well. So Trump prevails by these really minuscule margins, but you can't separate that victory, and Trump learned this lesson so well, you can't separate that victory from the procedural rules about who votes and how they vote and where they vote and all of that stuff. Now, (laughs) so what's been happening uh, since 2020 now, since Trump's loss, of the election is um, a pretty remarkable move in the states. So this is from a Brennan Center report, uh, which says that, quote, state lawmakers have introduced a startling number of bills to curb the vote uh, in the backlash to 2020. Um, and this includes, as of Mar- late March, 361 bills with restrictive provisions in 41 states. And that's a, that's a 108 uh, increase over the 253 restrictive bills Tallied in February of this year. So there's this kind of exponential push to restrict voting. Um, what am I talking about? Um, well, of course, Biden won by mail in voting and early voting. Uh, the numbers there are unbelievable, actually. Um, I could just tell you mail in ballots requested 89 million, mail in and early in person ballots returned 101 million. Um, and, you know, Biden total. Um, got 81 million votes. So you know the number of mail-in and early votes was about 20 million more than Biden even received. So this has become the dominant form of voting, especially for Democrats. So the Republicans' bills um, will uh, take aim at absentee voting, voting mail-in voting, restrict uh, stricter ID requirements, making voter registration harder, um, et cetera, et cetera. And this is passing in states that are really significant in the electoral college system. Texas, um, Arizona, uh, you already have 70 electoral votes kind of going this way. So when we look forward to 2022 and 2024, I think the big lie, even though a lot of us are tempted to dismiss it as political theater and just hyperbole, you know, Trump is a deranged narcissist or whatever you want. Actually, it's a malevolent, but brilliant political strategy that's been hard at work in democracies for, actually you know, not just since Obama won in, in 2008, you go back to when white men wanted universal suffrage even though they didn't own property. And they were their vote was restricted because the elites who were in power in aristocratic England and in uh, Jacksonian America didn't want people without property to have access to the vote. They knew that would change the policies that would be enacted. So this isn't really anything new, it's just the, the, the form Is new. The substance is the one of the oldest playbooks um, in existence in in democratic history. So, okay, and then um, yeah, the other thing I would I would say to keep an eye on, in addition to the voting rights stuff, is uh, the polarization stuff, because that's getting really really extreme. Um, When uh, so, the one of the numbers that has stayed really steady in Biden's first 100 days, and you can look at all of Biden's great accomplishments, but 538.com only gives him a 53% approval rating by aggregating numerous polls. They only give him a 53% approval rating. Um, the AP's now giving him 62%, I think. But still, Biden's doing all this great stuff. He's got 53% approval, apparently. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, isn't really doing anything, and yet uh, approval of his big lie is still hovering around 70% of Republicans. So um, according to the latest polls, and they're done monthly, around 70% of Republicans believe that the election was not freely or fairly conducted. Only 30% of Republicans blame Trump for the January insurrection in one form or another. You know, however strong you want that blame to be, only 30% hold that kind of blame for him. And only 13% trust the mainstream media. Um, so you know, what, what I would say to keep an eye on is, has the United States dipped off the radar of advanced democracies in terms of, hey, you need shared facts. Hey, you need some political community. You need some reason to debate on the merits. You can't just be talking in different universes accusing the other side of being socialists and fraudulent um, vote folks or whatever the word is for that. so um, that's my fear, uh, is that the United States could dip off the edge of uh, the democratic spectrum. On the other hand, right? the hope here, I think, is that Biden's substantive policies could actually have enough of a beneficial effect so that those who believe in the big lie would be outnumbered by those who are seeing real benefits from old-style good government. So for me, it's a big question mark, but I think it's really Trump's demise with a heavy or a triple question mark, if you want. Uh, and I'll leave it out there. I'll leave it there for now. Thanks. Mm. Um,
2: yeah, I mean I think that's right. So thanks, Tim. Uh, thanks for inviting me again to participate on this panel. And as always, thanks for making the law school great again. Um, <laughs> I want to thank also Marianne Smith, the law school events team, for organizing the evening, Dean Penny Matthews for the kind introduction, my fellow panelists, and thanks everyone for attending. Uh, I, I presume that some of you were at our first panel discussion uh, last November, <laughs> where we talked about the crisis of democratic legitimacy brought about by the Trump presidency. Now, my brief on that panel was to talk about Trump's challenge to the rule of law. Um, in the United States. And I want to continue with that theme on this panel. I want to use my 10 minutes uh, to speak about challenges to the rule of law and democratic norms um, resulting from the Trump presidency that have continued into the first 100 days of the Biden administration. Um, I also want to talk about the response of the new administration to those challenges, uh, ongoing moves to hold Trump and his minions liable for their legal transgressions, and the future of those accountability efforts under both the Biden administration and other political and legal institutions in the United States. And specifically, I want to center that discussion around three particular areas. Um, The first is the January 6th insurrection at the US Capitol. The second, as Tim brought up, is the continued Republican assault on voting rights in the United States. And finally, the third, is ongoing legal efforts to hold Trump accountable for his misdeeds as a matter of both civil and criminal American law. So let me just begin with a quick refresher from the last panel. What do we mean by the rule of law? Um, The rule of law is simply the idea that in democratic societies, people make rules, called laws, to govern themselves using fair and agreed upon processes. And those same people then choose to abide by those laws and their administration. Um, They also accept that the law applies equally uh, to everyone, that no one's above the law, and that lawbreakers can be held to account in some fashion. And finally that adherence to the rule of law is itself a value in a democratically functioning society. Now among other benefits, um, the advantages of societies following the rule of law is that it lowers levels of official corruption, um, it avoids the settling of disputes by violence or conflict, and it maintains checks and balances on the accumulation of individual or state power. Um, adherence to the rule of law likewise promotes open government, accessible justice for the population at large, the accountability of state actors, respect for human rights, and fair and appropriate lawmaking. Uh, in fact, um, think while you're sitting there of any society, country, or government at present that is not substantially committed to the rule of law. Uh, and you will find evidence of the very corruption, violence, lack of government accountability, unjust lawmaking, political authoritarianism breaches of human rights, and ill-treatment of the citizenry that commitment to the rule of law keeps in check and is designed to prevent. Okay, now with that definition in mind, um, it ought to be obvious that last January 6th, Americans saw one of the greatest challenges to the rule of law ever witnessed on U.S. soil. Um, Incited by Trump and his false claims of a stolen election, MAGA-inspired wire to storm the U.S. Capitol in an act of political insurrection designed to disrupt Congress's lawful and constitutionally required counting of state electoral votes that would make Joe Biden the next president of the United States. The deaths, destruction to the U.S. Capitol, and injury uh, resulting from that day continues to reverberate in the United States. And it likewise resulted, um, as you all know, in an unprecedented second impeachment proceeding against Donald Trump in the last weeks of his presidency. Now, Trump was ultimately and wrongfully, in my view, acquitted in that second impeachment trial. However, the Biden Justice Department has moved swiftly to arrest and prosecute the hundreds of individuals responsible for the January 6th uprising. And their jobs have been made a lot easier because the rioters um, you know, filmed their crimes in real time and, and proudly posted the incriminating evidence all over social media. Um, in fact, the, uh, the Capitol insurrection has actually spawned an entire industry of U.S. citizen sleuths attempting to help the FBI by bringing perpetrators to justice. And uh, these efforts have included my favorite one, which is uh, women altering their profiles yes. on dating apps and websites to suggest that they would be attracted to and interested in men who participated in the Capitol attack. And when some of those men reply with pictures of themselves, you know, actually rioting on January 6th, the women promptly turn their names over to the FBI. And, and I'm sure that came as a real shock and disappointment to those guys, you know, because in Trump world, nothing really says romance like violent political insurrection. <laughs> I mean, it beats dinner in a movie. Apart from ongoing law enforcement efforts against those individual January 6th rioters, Um, The Biden administration is likewise pursuing a 9-11-style congressional committee to uncover all of the facts connected to the insurrection, and there's a lot more to know, um, including likely evidence of greater Trumpian and Republican complicity uh, with the insurrectionists themselves. Um, On that score, uh, and unbelievably only hours after the riot, um, you may remember that some 150 Republican members of Congress still voted not to certify the electoral count, Um, thus attempting to undermine the Biden presidency at the outset and to appease Trump with fealty to the big lie, uh, which is that Trump actually won the election and is still the rightful president of the United States. Um, As Tim pointed out, Republicans continue to push that lie in numerous different ways, including at present a sham recount of votes in Arizona uh, to uncover non-existent election fraud, um, downplaying and memory-holing the events of January 6th, and as I'll talk about next, a fresh assault on voting rights in the United States. Um, some of these efforts would be comical um, if they weren't so dangerous. Uh, in the Arizona recount, for example, and I, I kid you not, uh, right at this moment, Trump-inspired volunteers are currently inspecting individual balance for traces of bamboo. <laughs> Proof, they claim, of allegations that fraudulent ballots cast for Biden were actually created in Asia, where they have bamboo and merely shipped to Arizona where they only have cactuses. So, with respect to rule of law concerns, I'm not making that up. So, with respect to, I wish it I makes was. It so
1: funny. I wish I
2: was. So, with respect to rule of law concerns, so w- what lessons, in all seriousness, can or should be learned from the January 6th Capitol insurrection? There's lots of them, but I think the main one um, is to understand how Trump's false narrative of electoral fraud. Uh, actively supported or tacitly accepted by a significant number of Republican lawmakers and voters was ultimately aimed at delegitimizing lawful electoral processes in the service of authoritarian governance backed by self-righteous political violence. Um, in other words, the insurrection showed that the ultimate end game of Trump, his supporters, and his enablers was to undermine the rule of American law in the service of a narrative that supported their own rule. Um, a quest that continues to this day. Um, It also demonstrated, disturbingly, that there is significant political and popular support in the US for anti-democratic conduct, norms, laws, and behaviors. Um, Indeed, by showing that it is relatively easy to revolt against democracy on its own doorstep, uh, with the backing, ironically, of democratically elected lawmakers and the voters who put them in power, uh, Trump has ensured that the crisis of political and governing legitimacy he created will inevitably rear its head again. Um, the solution is to strengthen democratic values through law and political transparency, increase civic participation in both the economy and functioning of democracy, and foster ongoing political and legal accountability for anti-democratic misdeeds. Um, these should be the continuing aims and priorities of the Biden administration in response to January 6. But it's no simple or easy task when the forces of right-wing media, deep state conspiracy theories, and maga continue to hold sway in the Republican Party ecosystem and with a significant portion of the country at large. So quickly moving to my second point, as Tim's already noted, the post-Trump era is witnessing one of the most significant assaults on American voting rights um, since the efforts of Southern states in the last century. That was known as Jim Crow laws. Um, to disenfranchise millions of black voters in state and federal elections. Um, Under the guise of ensuring so-called vote integrity and security, Republican-controlled states like Georgia, Florida, Texas have enacted or are in the process of enacting laws that restrict voter access to the ballot box in in numerous ways. Uh, Many of these methods, such as limiting the number of ballot drop boxes in precincts, voting precincts, forbidding the unsolicited mailing to voters of absentee ballots, and penalizing various forms of third-party assistance to voters disproportionately impact minority groups and voters of color, persons most likely to vote for Democrats in upcoming elections. Um, Combined with the existing and significant gerrymandering of congressional districts by Republican state legislatures, these laws are clearly designed to help Republicans both maintain political control in their states and take back the US U.S. Senate and House of Representatives in future elections. Um, Some of these new laws impose so many restrictions on voting rights that President Biden recently exclaimed, quote, they make Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. Um, Again, funny if it wasn't so serious. And I expect in advance of the 2022 U.S. election, more Republican-controlled states are likely to follow with new voting restrictions of their own. Now, apart from the appalling specifics of these laws themselves, the lessons for the rule of law uh, coming out of this anti-voting legislation is how Republicans continue to turn the rule of law against itself. Um, In other words, by invoking legal processes ostensibly aimed at upholding the rule of law in the guise of protecting voting integrity, Republicans are actually using their lawful legislative power to undermine the ability of people to vote. Uh, Moreover, since there is no credible evidence that there was any real voter fraud in the 2020 election, the only motivations for these new laws are to make it easier for Republicans to win elections, to appease Trump and earn his political support by showing allegiance to the big lie, and to galvanize and gin up the Republican base through the continued fiction of a stolen presidential election. Uh, None of these reasons are sufficient justification, of course, for any new voting laws, much less ones vehemently and appropriately opposed by progressive lawmakers, groups, citizens, and corporate entities across the US. So to sum it up and put it plainly, um, the false narrative of electoral fraud maintained by Trump and the Republicans claims the authority of seeking voting justice through legal process, but in reality is actually aimed at delegitimizing lawful electoral processes in the service of personal and political ends. And since the Republicans fear they can't win elections by persuading people to vote for them, they've decided to win elections by making it harder for opposition voters to vote against them. The solution is real voter enfranchisement through national legislation currently proposed by the Biden administration. Indeed, if the For the People Act, which is what it's called, currently before Congress can pass, it will effectively wipe out these state laws, restore voting rights to their appropriate constitutionally mandated status in the U.S. An even better solution, at least in my view, would be for the people who live in Republican states that enact voter restriction laws to simply vote, in large enough numbers that they oust Republican lawmakers anyway and neuter their attempts at disenfranchisement. As Barack Obama told people in the last election, quote, don't get mad, vote. Mm -hmm. Finally, moving very rapidly to my third point, what processes are currently afoot to hold Trump civilly and criminally responsible for his misdeeds? I'm happy to report that in addition to the possible January 6th Congressional Commission and ongoing Justice Department investigations into the riot, There's a number of current and ongoing civil and criminal cases involving Trump and his minions. Um, Prosecutors in the New York DA's office and AG's office appear to be getting closer to filing criminal charges of bank fraud, tax fraud, business fraud um, against Trump and the Trump organization. Uh, Trump's former lawyer, New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, is also under federal investigation for his illegal election-related activities owing to his efforts at digging up dirt in Ukraine against Hunter Biden. Um, And Trump is himself under investigation for attempting to instigate election fraud in the state of Georgia, having been taped by election officials there pressuring them to quote, find him, unquote, the 11,000 votes he needed to win the state. Trump's also being sued civilly by several Democratic lawmakers under U.S. law, originally designed to stop the Ku Klux Klan from interfering with the lawful processes of the federal government. The claim here is that Trump actually conspired with the January 6th insurrectionists to stop Congress from carrying out their constitutionally mandated responsibility to count votes. And that is a remarkable assertion on its face. I mean, think about it. I mean, whether or not these lawsuits succeed, could you ever have imagined that a president of the United States would be sued by members of Congress under a law aimed at the activities of the KKK? I mean, I'm certainly glad that such laws exist but I never expected a modern-day U.S. president and the Klan to have anything in common. So as I noted in my last talk to conclude, to survive, what does the rule of law have to do? It's going to have to reassert itself in the coming years and reassert its commitment to democratic norms, not only in the hands of Biden the Democrats, but in the hearts and minds of all, or at least most, Americans and American lawmakers. We all have to remember as the updated legal adage goes, that we're a government of laws and not people. And we need to enact laws ensuring that this stays the case. And we even more particularly need to remember that when it comes to threats to democracy and the rule of law, if we cannot recall, account for, and understand the past, we may be condemned to repeat it in future. Um, I agree with Tim, and I fear that in one form or another, the Republican Party and its followers may still be toying with those threats to democracy and the rule of law and may succeed unless Biden, the Democrats, and other Americans of conscience and good faith can effectively fight back in the years to come. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you. It was great. Both of you guys are um, wonderful. And thank you, Dean Penney, and thank you, Marianne, and thank you all for being here. Um, So I think... um, Again, also like Scott, there's some things I said in the last session that I'm going to just summarize really quickly. And I'll start by reiterating that this movement that brought us Donald Trump uh, and the extreme polarization and these growing militant groups who are part of the Capitol siege did not begin with Trump um, and therefore will not end with Trump. Um, It capitalized on Trump and his kind of narrow caricature of tough guy, and his othering and blaming those others that that I manufactured. Um, but secondly, I think I want to reemphasize that this Trumpian movement was enabled and promoted by talk radio and shop jocks who were spewing these divisive hate frames and blame frames, and that this was enabled by the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine And the changing of the laws of the Telecommunication Act, which made it permissible and legal and kind of acceptable um, for these um, purveyors of hate, these hate frames, directing blame and all of these messages that Tim was actually talking about from the Republican convention. These have been going on for decades now in talk radio. Um, so all of this kind of worked synergistically to make this go out on thousands of radio stations. Because the model was so profitable, I mean, these truck trucks were making millions of dollars, um, it was replicated and replicated. And then, of course, Fox News came along, and that added to it. And now you add to it, we've got the more extreme, the One American News Network, Newsmax. And then the internet came along, and Tim touched on this because of the way social media works. It magnified the messages and created this sort of echo chamber that Tim referenced that then worked to discredit traditional legacy media. Why? Because if you discredit them, you build a bond with your, own, with your um, audiences to come to you only because those people are lying to you. So it became this sort of uh, cycle. This untrustworthy them, this othering. Now, then also on the internet, you also have these algorithms that are built to give people more and more extreme content. And so if you go in and look at something originally conservative, it'll keep taking you to more and more extreme conservatism. Um, Or if you're a vegetarian like me, it might start taking you more and more extreme to veganism. But uh, they're built this way intentionally because it keeps you kind of hooked of keeping going down this extreme. So I would posit that Donald Trump is actually a product of this, as much as he's now kind of a titular head of this movement. I think Donald Trump himself was radicalized by these these media and has become a a true believer. So, again, so why has this happened? I have four things here. One is the law, right? When they change the law of the media standards um, of what could be broadcasted and how many stations you could own, that's one thing. Number two is this kind of corporatized economic model of the media that values profit, over and above the rule of law, over and above human decency, over and above any concept of human interest. That is also, by the way, part of the law because corporate directors are held responsible not for any kind of public interest but for you know, doing what's best for the corporation and the shareholders. That tends to translate into just money. Uh, number three is... Um, this, these extreme messages that become more and more extreme that happened first in not maybe not first first but first really publicly on thousands of stations through these um, talk radio programs uh, radicalized party members who then entered the halls of power and then you get Newt Gingrich for example and he created then the Gingrich Senators and their whole M.O. was to continue to uh, bomb throw to obstruct any possible um, collaboration, and to polarize the country. And then finally, number four, is the money of the extreme right, which um, has been spent on think tanks, on front groups, on funding these um, social movements like the Tea Party earlier, and to continue on into these groups. So that has keeping this material in the public no matter what so through their framing the messages danny's going to talk about this a little bit but some of the most important parts of what the framing contains is this kind of othering and social identity the us versus them right so no longer is there an us united states you know but like here we've got the five million team right that started to disintegrate it became us The good guys and them, the bad guys. Well, who are the bad guys? Anybody that didn't agree with them. So Democrats who were planning the socialist takeover, um, raping the country, uh, destroying the things that you love and the values that that you love, the family, blah, blah, blah. You can keep, I mean, there's a huge long list of this. African-Americans, Latinos, immigrants. It was just all of this othering, othering that they are destroying the thing that you love. Now, um, once, once this us and them gets created and this social identity gets created, and again, Danny knows more about this than I do, but as uh, political scientists, we also look at how it affects politics. And one of the things is that facts are not important anymore. You're, you're so steeped in this. And when they do brain scans, you can actually see cognitive dissonance when people get facts that are counter- to what they want to believe about their party members or their candidates or their ideology. So they fight off fact uh, mentally. Um, The other thing that political scientists have noticed is that often social identity or political identity comes first, and that's what has people join a party. The policy preferences come second. So they adopt the policy preferences of their social-political identity rather than the other way around. You know, those of us we go, oh, you know, I believe these kind of things are the right way to go, therefore I'm going to register as a Democrat or a Green Party member or a Labor Party member. In many cases now, we're seeing that it's the other way around. The identity drives the party affiliation, which then drives the um, policy preferences. So... um, So then you get the conformity, groupthink, intergroup emotions. Now, disinformation they're also finding is stickier, it's sexier than facts. So that's what ends up getting spread more. Partly, it's because it generates this shock, this anger, this outrage, which has an addictive quality to it. It stimulates certain parts of the brain that are kind of pleasure centers. And again, Tim mentioned this, it takes the responsibility off of you and allows you to blame others, which then again uh, triggers the anger. So they spread at a much faster rate than any kind of truthful things. And so what are the consequences? Well, we already know about the Capitol riot, but I thought this was really interesting. The Capitol Police has dealt with just in the first three months over 200 threat cases against Congress members. So if, if that keeps pace, that's going to be 800 by the end of the year, right? So last year was 586. 2017, it was 171. So it, it has escalated. So there's clearly anger still brewing and these, this kind of um, belief about the evil other. Uh, and it might continue to be the harm. So, um, but still, there's still the positive things. You know, Joe Biden did win. And I do think that's a really positive thing. Most Americans preferred Joe Biden. Um, and the polls that Tim mentioned were, was an aggregation of polls. The one that came out today, the AP poll, said that Joe Biden is sitting at a 63% approval rating overall. And despite all the misinformation on COVID-19 science, such as Fox News, did 325 segments, undermining health science... Biden's approval rating for his handling of the pandemic is 71%. That includes 47% of Republicans. Huh. That's meaningful. So that's an AP poll that came out just today. And optimism is ticking up about the country. And that matters because it's when things are really dire that people tend to, like, scramble to their othering, um, to their in-grouping. So, Now, Joe Biden, some more positive stuff. Most of us expected him to be a very kind of middle of the road, transitional, steers gently and quietly back towards basic decency, rule of law, try to bridge a divided country. And he has reinstated the idea of a statesman, of decency. And imagine this, a public interest presidency, not one that serves a party. But now, a lot of experts are calling him transformational because of his so-called profoundly progressive policies that counter so much of Republican mantras. But I would say they're only progressive because of something else that Tim brought up, which is that the three, at least three of the last Republican presidents have so profoundly moved the country to the right in every meaningful way to the point of us being virtually unrecognizable. Reagan, Bush, and Trump... None of the Democratic presidents could move it substantively back. So it has been, as Tim noted, a drift way to the right. Increasingly hard to turn back. So, what's actually transformational about Joe Biden? That he's trying to return the country to some sort of public interest, like United States interest, um, global interest, even human rights, the environment, public interest goals that we even shared with Nixon. I mean he passed the EPA clean environment, clean water so, so yes in the first hundred days just a few things I'll just do the environment I made a little list he convened the world, world leaders on climate summit to increase their pace as well as his pace of action um, committed the US to cutting climate pollution 50 to 52% below 2005 levels by 2030 that's almost double what we promised in the Paris agreement The American Jobs Act was about a green economy which focuses on billions for the transition to electric vehicles, clean electricity, clean manufacturing. It's considered the most ambitious climate plan ever, tied to jobs. He's taking on environmental justice and trying to uh, move the benefits from investments into disadvantaged communities, and he's established the White House Environmental Justice Interagency Council, a White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, and he's gone through this big list of the things that Trump did to the envi- to the environment, and he's undoing them one by one. Um, that includes the EPA scientific standards, halting drilling on public lands, uh, reestablishing the state's ability to establish cleaner environmental laws. Trump did away with that. He, like, um, blocked that. So, so far, his administration has overturned or targeted Trump's environmental actions at the pace of one per day, which I think is uh, pretty cool. Um, So I think, do I have anything to close with on this? I think that... um, presidential scholar Steve Skronik says that presidents, presidencies are shaped by past presidencies. And he, he's looked at historically and there's a lot of truth to that. And one of the things I think that's noticeable about Joe Biden is again we expected a strongly bipartisanship, a compromise uh, type of a guy. And he hasn't done away with bipartisanship completely. After all, he's holding a meeting with the Big Four this week on his plans But it seems he's not willing to be held hostage. And that's kind of what I think is um, the difference. So while Republican leader, uh, Majority Leader McConnell, who's been called the greatest obstructionist in modern US history, has declared that his party's role is stopping this administration. That's what he said his party's goal is. That's their goal. It's not advancing something. It's stopping this administration. And so I think that there are two things from previous administrations that Biden has picked up on. One is from Trump, which is audacity. So Trump showed what audacity can do. And I think that now Joe Biden is is seeing that and saying, you know what? Trump used his audacity for not very, uh, for some pretty destructive things. Perhaps it can be used in the other direction. The other thing, I think, was from Obama, which was Obama really tried to, to kumbaya, you know, bipartisanship. He's Hawaiian after all, you know. And we saw how far that got him. He did get some, you know, Obamacare through, but it really did stifle a lot of things that could have been done Um, And a lot of those things did get reversed. And so I think that is the hallmark of Joe Biden now is all the things he's learned and most specifically from these last two presidencies, but also I think George Bush as well, who also had audacity, you know. So with that, I'll hand it to Danny.
3: Um, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, I'm going to use a microphone because my voice is not very strong, as you can tell. Um, uh, today I'm going to be talking about my favorite topic, which is a bit of a more optimistic view of uh, the first 100 days and uh, the demise of Trump and also potentially the GOP. Um, so to sort of foreshadow my talk, I'm going to break this up into two separate sections in essence. Um, The first section is really going to focus on how the changing racial demographics of the US is really kind of um, a major threat to the GOP at large. And I think um, this really motivates a lot of the stuff that Tim was talking about in terms of voter restrictions, um, et cetera, that the GOP is trying to enact right now. They know that their electorate is shrinking uh, increasingly over the years um, and have to do something to, um, to stop that in essence. Um, And this really goes back, um, not just the previous administration, but all the way back to the 1960s in terms of the realignment of the South. Um, So just as a recap, the realignment uh, took place in in which the South was initially a stronghold for the Democratic Party um, until Kennedy and then uh, Johnson following Kennedy's assassination uh, wound up passing the civil rights legislation. Um, and it was that kind of lightning rod moment that then led the South to, to flip until eventually in the 1990s when the Republicans uh, made it a, a Republican stronghold. Um, so this, this is a, a pattern that's been developing over the last 50 years um, that, uh, that the GOP is really kind of on their last leg, I think. Um, after talking about the the realignment and how this has led to an increasingly alienated electorate that the that the GOP must draw, um, I'll then switch over to uh, talking about the big lie briefly, and talking about how the last 50 years have really set the stage for um, for a voting base that's prone to believe in conspiracy theories. Um, and then finally, I'll, I'll conclude with. Um, my view on what the long-term viability of the Republican Party looks like at the moment. Um, So in terms of the changing racial uh, demographics, uh, so the census in uh, 2017 uh, indicated that by 2044, uh, the majority of the US will be non-white. So that's not to say that whites will be um, the smallest uh, party in the, the uh, the smallest racial group in the US, but it will be just under 50% of the total population. And given that the GOP is increasingly reliant on white voters, this is a major worrying point for for the GOP at large. Um, And it's also stoked a lot of fear amongst racial conservatives in that they feel like their existence is basically in threat as a result of these changing demographics. And you can see it in lots of the conservative rhetoric at the moment. So the cancel culture, etc. All of this is about the fear that, um, that white culture is being erased from history. Um, so the removal of statues, all of these um, various events that were, were uh, greatly contested during the Trump administration are highlighting this threat that white racial conservatives are experiencing in the U.S. at the moment. And this really, in many ways is a continuation of this racial realignment um, that that took place in the early 1960s. Um, So just to give you an idea of what this looked like, um, so these are data from um, a paper that my colleagues and I published a few years back, looking at cohort differences in terms of partisanship in the South and outside of the South. And what you can see um, from the figure is that in essence, every generation post the Civil Rights Movement become less and less likely to identify with the Democratic Party in the South. Um, so the, the y-axis on the far left is a strength of identification with re- the Republican Party. And you can see that, um, again, re- uh, Democratic identification declines considerably over these last 50 years, particularly in the South. You don't see this trend um, outside of the South. It seems to be specific to um, what's now become the Republican stronghold. Um, So much so that this racial retrenchment group, so the group of voters who came of age during the Reagan administration um, and and subsequent years, they're, um, they're the first generation of Southerners to identify more strongly with the GOP than the Democratic Party. And again, this is specific to the South. Um, And and what this, in essence, foretells is that racial attitudes have become increasingly important uh, for the GOP. Um, In fact, it's one of the dominant forces that's motivating uh, Republican vote choice um, at the moment. Um, So these are data looking at the 2012 election and a a variety of different potential factors that uh, predicted voting for Obama versus Romney. The left side indicates votes for for Romney. Um, So you can see that racial resentment is one of the strongest predictors here of voting Mm -hmm. for Romney. Um, Unemployment is slightly associated with voting for um, Obama, um, and then party ID is the strongest predictor of of voting for Romney over Obama. When we flash forward to the 2016 primary and look at how levels of racial resentment affected uh, voting for Trump, you see a quite obvious pattern here, whereby the people who are highest on racial resentment, so in essence, that's a nice way of saying racists, (laughs) um, the more racist you become, the stronger the likelihood of you voting for Trump over all of the other potential GOP candidates in the primaries. And this, in fact, carried over into the 2016 election, whereby, uh, once again, racial resentment is one of the key predictors of vote for Trump over um, Clinton. Um, and I think one of the striking patterns um, when comparing across the 2012 and 2016 election is you can see that racial resentment looks like it has a stronger effect in the 2016 election between two white candidates um, relative to the 2012 election between uh, a black candidate, mm-hmm. Barack Obama, and Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so an election in which race was center field, um, you see it playing racial resentment playing lesser of a role than in the 2016 election. Mm, and, and I think what this really shows is that the Republican, geo, or the, the Republican voter base is becoming increasingly reliant on this um, racist rhetoric, in a sense, which really ties in to the big lie, in a sense. Um, and, and it begs the question why do people endorse these types of conspiracy theories? Um, So Tim, Scott, and Maria have all uh, addressed um, various points of this, so a bit of this will be just summarizing. Um, But we know that people endorse conspiracy theories for a variety of different motives. Um, Within the social psych literature, we've identified um, three specific motives. So this epistemic threat, so this this uncertainty of what the future holds, um, is a prime motivator um, of conspiracy belief endorsement. Next is this existential threat. So in the previous slide, I mentioned that whites have this fear that their culture is being erased. That type of existential threat really sets the stage for the endorsement of conspiracy theories. And then finally, these relational needs, um, this desire to belong and fit in with with one another's group, is another key motivator of conspiracy theory endorsement. Um, And as Maria and uh, Tim noted, Um, Social media has been a a, a prime motivator of uh, conspiracy endorsement over the years, and that's particularly because of this relational motive. So people have this strong desire to share information with like-minded others. The algorithms on Facebook, various social media um, outlets, etc. really set this rabbit hole that people um, fall into to continually sharing this, these false beliefs that become more and more extreme um, the longer and longer you, um, you engage in, in um, this process. It's also related to this idea about motivated social cognition. So people tend to see and seek out information that confirms their existing beliefs. And uh, once again, with the Facebook algorithms, etc., you're really seeing people fall into these echo chambers that are just reinforcing this big lie and other various conspiracy theories that fit along with with one another. Um, And all of this really reminds me of of, uh, Leon Festinger's um, uh, famous work in the 1950s in the book When Prophecy Fails. Um, If you haven't read it, um, it, it's a really nice read about the psychology of conspiracy beliefs, Mm -hmm. um, and it forms the basis of what later became cognitive dissonance theory. Mm Just to kind of give you a a brief overview of the book, Fessinger started uh, following around a cult um, who had predicted that the world would end on February 22nd, 1951. Not to spoil the book, but it didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so. The, the really interesting thing about this is, so they have these three... Or did it, or did it. did yeah. <laughs> it. Could be, this
4: could be the Matrix, actually.
3: <laughs> um, and, and so what happened at the, end of, uh, at, at the end of the evening when the cult had got together and was expecting the world to end, you know, they thought the UFO was going to land in the backyard and pick them all up before the world exploded, um, and none of this happened. So what did the conspiracy theorists do when this, this happened? they didn't back down. They looked at each other and said, we saved the world. Um, so it, it kind of shows you that these like extreme beliefs have a tendency to, to lead people to double down on the, the absurdity of it all. Um, and I think what happened with the capitalist insurrection and then the, the belief that Trump was somehow going to be inaugurated in March because that's when um, the founders had initially done the inaugurations, <laughs> it, it just shows like how far down this rabbit hole people are going with. Um, with this big lie and believing in conspiracies. Um, so I, I'm kind of ending on a more pe- uh, positive note than, than the rest of the group I think in, in that I'm, I, I'm questioning whether or not the, well yeah Maria Maria was ending on a positive note as well but I think all of this really points to the potential end of the GOP as we know it, unless they're able to, to get these um, uh, voting regulations peeled back and prevent people from going out to vote. Um, That's really their only strategy at this point, is to prevent people from voting. Um, And the reason that I I think that the GOP has a lot of um, difficult times ahead is they're they're appealing to an increasingly small electorate. So by 2044, whites are no longer going to be the majority um, ethnic group um, in the U.S., and um, the, the steps that they're taking at the moment really kind of disavow the ideological purity of the party that, that it once stood for, as, as Tim had noted earlier. Um, so the, they're, um, tomorrow, they're in essence kicking out Liz Cheney as one of the, um, the leaders of the GOP, um, despite the fact that she's, she's ideologically quite a, a core conservative within the party, um, she has an 82% uh, rating on the Heritage um, Action website. This isn't like a, a middle-of-the-road Republican. She's born and bred Republican, and they're getting ready to oust her because um, she doesn't support this big lie. Um, and I think it's also important to note that uh, there are a, a few Republicans who are turned off with the, these conspiracy beliefs. Um, So these are data from 538 uh, showing the number or the percentage of Republicans who believe that uh, Biden was uh, fairly elected. Um, And you see that 26% of Republicans um, endorse this. And yes, you could say that that's 74% believe the big lie, Um, but breaking it down further, 74% of less than 50% does not equal 51%. So, the GOP is really at a crossroads at the moment where they need to make a a decision, and if this removal of Cheney is any indication, they're making the wrong choice for the party in the long run. Um, So, I think with that, um, I'll go ahead and wrap things up.
1: want to add to your conclusion, which is that there was today announced in the New York Times a letter written by some hundred Republicans, past uh, past mm-hmm. officials and such, saying they're threatening to start a new party uh, if, the, if this, you know, big lie continues uh, to be the, you know, sort of litmus test for uh, where the party is going. So I think you know, we are watching this disintegration mm-hmm. right now. And it could be like the Whigs that like happened in American history.
3: I mean, the Republican Party is the initial third party. Yes, that's right.
2: OK, well, I think we're ready for some questions. And you know, plenty of time for questions. Marianne's got a mic there, so we can get it to it. Uh, just,
4: just a very nice query. Um, you haven't addressed the core legacy of, of Trump, which is his appointment of hundreds of judges at federal level, yep. as, as well as part the party number of states, and the number of being judicial discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, I've spoken with most of them of all of the, the state judicial appointment and uh, judicial disciplinary bodies, because um, you have, have both judicial election and judicial appointment sort of variety of proceedings. So the legislation coming through, and for all of the ambitions of the Biden uh, administration and subsequent uh, Democratic administration, um, is there going to be a clock in that, given the judicial supremacy of the Supreme Court over the, the other two elements of your uh, of your I
2: mean, I mean, I think the answer to that is, prob- it depends. So. You know, For example, I think what Georgia, Florida, and Texas have done or are doing, a lot of it's unconstitutional. And the question is whether a conservative Supreme Court would strike some of that down. So there's the ability of state legislatures to keep these repressive voting laws because the conservative courts won't strike them down. On the other hand, if Biden gets the For the People Act through and he neuters those laws, there's nothing the Supreme Court can do about that because there's really going to be no grounds or platform to declare that law unconstitutional. Um, and in fact, um, I would like to point out that Trump actually has been reasonably unsuccessful so far in the U.S. Supreme Court. They turned down all his petitions on election fraud cases. They bounced all of it. They, 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 they didn't rule substantively in his favor. Now, whether they're just biding their time uh, to become more activist and conservative, who knows? They've got a gun case they just took but you know, when it comes to some of these more political decisions that impact political life, um, they still will have a tendency to say that these are political questions that have to be settled by legislatures. And more specifically, there won't be a constitutional hook to declare these things unconstitutional. So giving people more voting rights um, really is unconstitutional because a constitution is a floor and not a ceiling. So they'll have less ability to do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about that than I am about Biden just being able to get that For the People Act through, through Congress. The biggest obstacle to that is the filibuster.
1: Mm. Not and, there's, and there's a Democrat who's not committed to it. Yeah,
2: and there's, well, there's a few Democrats who aren't fully committed in to it. In the Senate, I mean. Yeah, in the Senate. And, and, and the biggest obstacle to that is the filibuster, which has nothing to do with the Supreme Court whatsoever. I would like to point out, though, that, as you point out, Biden has appointed now a committee to study That's the right. Supreme Court to decide whether it should be reformed, Expanded jurisdiction, changed whatever. So it's on the table,
1: and I find that really exciting and interesting.
2: Yeah, it, I mean, we'll see what and comes. And it's
1: about it. time, frankly. It yeah, really I, is. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. But
0: I, I would just add, I'm, I'm, I could be persuaded by the direction I think your question is going in, which is there's so many veto points in the U.S. constitutional system, a strange, eerily strange, incomplete constitution, kind of number of veto points. And, um, th- and I also disagree slightly with Scott. I do think the US Supreme Court in its current form could strike down important parts of the For the People Act on federalism grounds, in terms of interrupting the state's um, own power over uh, elections, and on First Amendment grounds when it comes to campaign finance provisions. And they've shown themselves you know, willing to go there uh, recently. So uh, yeah, it may lie in, in the federal judge's
5: hands. Um, me. Um, can you hear me? I can, I can do without um, So First of all, thank you very much for sort of contextualizing it and I'd like to talk about it in a, in a geopolitical context and specifically with, with what um, Scott was talking about. So the traditional sort of position of, um, of the U.S. Uh, not in a ergonomic sort of context of uh, the cowboy but the, the leader of the free world. Tim, you, you talked about that there was a correlation between the, the Republicans moving to the right with the 90s, which coincides with the fact that the Soviet Union you know, disintegrated and the old sort of enemy picture um, changed. Now, with the vacuum and the immense damage that has been done to the US standing in the democratic world, the rule of law, part of it, and the rise of these sort of auto-technocratic parts of it. That vacuum um, with the US, and in my opinion from a European perspective, Biden is very inward-centric focused too. It's almost, you know, it's, if it's not quite Monroe, doctrine-like centric, naval glazing but it's definitely more domestically focused than, than the US has been in the 60s, 70s and 80s. How do you see, From a New Zealand perspective, the vacuum being filled, given we've got the rise of the autocrats, given the fact that the 21st century is the the rise of China um, and the populist part of that, in the absence of the US being able to regain its position, because there's concern about what is going to happen in, in 24, huh? Are we going to get another another round of the same? and with what Europe is doing and dealing with its its own challenges of relevance, and I think they call it democratic deficit within the EU. How do you see that in a New Zealand American lens, geopolitically, of democracy, the rule of law, vis-a-vis the rise of um, the autocrats or the technocrats? Is it it fascism and therefore the mid-30s that we're looking at again? That's a question to challenge
0: I'm posing. Yeah. Okay. um, I'm not especially optimistic about the United States' ability to counter Russia or China. I think Russia is setting a really strong tone with its disinformation and foreign interference campaigns. Um, I think Putin is cementing his power and has been for a long time now in a pretty remarkable way. Um, the rise of the autocrats, also the plutocrats, you know, that, that a lot of Russia's wealth post, uh, privatization of the Soviet Union, uh, state enterprises created this crowd of autocrats, right? Or, sorry, uh, plutocrats oh, yeah. who sit, oligarchs who sit below, just below Putin. He's the king of them. And, and I think, yeah, Chinese infrastructure and foreign relations, economic power has been just breathtaking and is affecting New Zealand, uh, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, on a strongest voice on that question, I'd refer to Anne-Marie Brady, I guess. Um, but, I mean, with Biden, you know, he's, he's taking this tougher stance towards Russia with uh, sanctions against Kremlin backers. But I, I personally, I don't have a rosy picture of this. I couldn't believe that when Russia interfered with U.S. elections, there wasn't a very strong response. Uh, I couldn't believe that, because that to me is one of the principal ways in which you'd interfere with the sovereignty of a nation. Uh, if you can disrupt their their own national elections, that is you know, the feather in the cap of, of this kind of Russian model. So I'm not especially optimistic. I don't actually know what, what Biden's plans are, but I, I do think that his attempt to exert leadership on climate change would be a really interesting inroad there, if the U.S. can go from one of the Um, one of the worst in that category under Trump to one of the better ones, that could be a a vehicle for coalition building. Um, But yeah, he's got a lot of work ahead of him, and I honestly, I don't have anything very inspirational to say at this stage. The
1: rest of you
2: guys? Mm, No, no, I think that's Uh, that's about right.
1: I did notice the sanctions with Russia, and I think that could peel away some, uh, some of the oligarchs because it could affect um, their pocketbooks, which will make them unhappy with Mr. Putin. It's on the
5: fringes, though, right? It's a couple of, of, of travel restrictions and the likes of yours. Know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a sweat with, a, with bus tickets.
1: Yeah, it is at this point. So we don't know where it goes from here. And then again, of course, I think there's a big... Uh, depends on allies. Like, what, it, you know, a group of allies can be a little bit stronger than... The U.S. versus Russia and China.
0: What's your take on that, though? Uh, is it also pessimistic, or what? What do you see?
5: Um, it's very p- pessimistic. I've got a background as an officer serving in NATO, um, and we grew up. Um, we were raised with the with the anchor point of um, of NATO being a foundation block. It was rock solid. It was you know not to be questioned. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you had four years of carnage from the White House, um, sort of hammering away at one of those foundations, which is one of the reasons, in my personal opinion, that we've had you know, 70, 80 years of the most peaceful in, in inverted commas, uh, you know, um, democratic developments uh, that we've had in, in the last 250 years. Um, so so it's, it's very dark. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you for your presentations. I really enjoyed um, listening about um, USA and Biden and Trump's uh, in- uh, impact on America. Um, what I've been thinking about during Trump's uh, time, this has been a lot of hate speech, um, and you know Trump supporters uh,
4: are contributing to hate speech, uh, including other, uh, as as a part of other like far right groups as well. Do you think that um, what is in sort of Biden's toolkit to deal with hate speech? Because as
0: I understand it, because the U.S. has a constitution and it's the First Amendment, is it like a clear no from
4: the judges about hate, um, banning hate speech? Or do you, do you think there is, does Biden have options in terms of addressing it? you want to talk? Well, talk I mean, right they up.
1: have already said political speech is to be protected at just yeah. about any cost. And that included hate speech in a case that came before them. And that wasn't even a political hate speech. I think it dealt with advertising, if I'm correct.
2: Yeah, the basic yeah. rule in the States is you can't ban speech based on content. And the only exception is the you know yelling fire in the crowded theater. Can the I add
1: to this? and the fighting two words, other small the ones. Fighting, fighting words, words, a few little yeah. ones, yeah. But you know what I but think? there is some, no. There are some things that are happening that I think are interesting that are not from the courts. Hmm. Uh, and one of them is this lawsuit um, around the big lie because it involved a voting machine company Mm. uh, that... Dominion. Dominion, right, that that started to lose money because they were targeting them as part Mm. of the whole, you Mm. know, manipulation of the vote, et cetera. Um, And so uh, they sued. And um, I think that has scared a lot of these um, normally... Mm you know, lie-touting people into stopping at least some of the extreme versions. Mm. So So, I know New Zealand always looks at the United States and says, you're so litigious. But, you know, I, I'm really pro-litigation for these kinds of reasons because sometimes that's really all that's left. Um, the book I just finished is about torture survivors. They had nothing left except for suing their torturers in US courts. So I'm I think litigation and the process that the United States has with depositions we don't have them here, but you know those are tremendous ways of getting people under oath and getting truths out and starting to reshape things in a way. Um, I'd argue that the civil rights movement would not have gotten, it, many of the gains without civil litigation. So anyway, so this is separate from the Supreme Court down protecting speech and more like well, y- once there's harm to another, there could be other types of financial uh, damages given. Am I did too so, optimistic on that?
2: I think so. Yes. Okay. I mean, but, I guess just building
3: on that, like that's kind of. How a lot of these shock jocks have lost their jobs is from people pulling their financial support. And so that might be another um, mm. avenue for Americans to start boycotting some of these these companies that are contributing to Haiti. I space. mean, and and yet
2: Fox News is still the most watched cable channel in the in the United States. and and these lawsuits are incredibly difficult to maintain. They're rare. Um, and the Dominion one, I think, is, is very unusual, and it, it's already settled with One America, and they, it, may succe- it may succeed, or it may not. But, but even again, that's all after the fact.
1: True, that's <laughs> the, true. The, the
2: speech is out there. Yeah. It's not being prohibited at the front end. It's just being punished civilly at, at the back end. And as long as Fox News and other businesses out there think it's in their business interest to keep engaging in that speech because yeah. it's worth more to them than what it might cost them in litigation, they're going to keep doing it. Just a so reminder I'm that there, did use,
1: there was, which I referred to, you know, the fairness doctrine before. And even though that may not be the answer to go back to, they, there was regulation around what you could do in the public broadcast because mm. they were renting the airwaves, essentially public airwaves owned by the public. Mm. And in order to be on those public airwaves, there had to be certain standards around fairness on issues and people you couldn't just spew hate that of course does not necessarily apply to like the internet at this point unless they declare the internet a public good that then to use it you have to adhere to certain standards that's a little bit different from the other types of speech protections I think it's like rules to to rent the airwaves, rules to rent the public good so that may be an approach
4: Sounds good? Yep. So, yeah. um, so I think some of these, uh, like the big lie, and some of these methods that have been effective in America, have been going to be have begun to be exploited here in Brazil as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not just in politics, but yep. for, for example, the anti-vax and right? they all have this very similar basis. on mm. these aspects that they share. Mm. Do you see this? as being a serious threat, or a real serious threat to our democracy? Here? I, I is it something that we, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. the public, are the target of this, is it something that we can combat? Is it something that we can anything
1: can do about? go ahead. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah uh, my answer is yes. I think it's a threat. Um, every so look, I, when I went and studied a whole bunch of conflicts and genocides and coups and did all these case studies, every scenario, people said, oh, it can't happen here. Can't happen here. And guess what? Then it happened. And so I think it's always something to be vigilant about. Um, I think it's a really positive thing that we have uh, public radio, RNZ. I think that's a really great thing. I think it's really positive that we now have New Zealand-owned media and stuff. I think that's, you know, because otherwise it's all foreign media owning it, uh, foreign companies owning our media. Um, So I think it's good that we're developing that newsroom and um, these outlets. But, yes, people are still getting this information from, you know, some of the talk radio hosts. You know, there's some of this othering that's going on already, the conspiracy theories coming over the Internet. Yes, I think these are problems, and I think New Zealand has to keep its standards. It doesn't have the same, like, Protection of hate speech that the United States has, and it has to adhere to that kind of a thing in order to prevent it from going completely off the rails.
2: Did you want to add anything to that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely a threat. I mean, you you have people protesting (laughs) in Altair Square about the lockdowns. Um, I just received a flyer in my mail the other day. Yeah. Um,
2: I got that same flyer. I don't know if any, did you see the anti vaccination flyer? I got a mailbox. I have to say, I'm a little more optimistic, and it's probably because I love this country so much. Compared to, and I still love my I still love the United States, but the last year has made me love this country more than ever. Uh, and when I got that flyer in my mailbox, my first reaction was it's not very kiwi. Uh, now, I don't know if that's just subjective on my part, and maybe I'm a little delusional, but I, I, I still think that there are some significant differences in the culture, history, politics, law of this country in the United States that might save us from some of those greatest excesses and something also in the New Zealand national character. Now, I could be wrong about all that, and it may happen here, but I'm a little more hopeful that there are some significant differences that that may cause us to be able to push back in a more rational way. But the threat is out there, and that little flyer in my mailbox was the first indication I I had of it. But my reaction to it was, I'm not sure how well it'll take hold. But we'll see.
3: I think what there's like... 10 to 15 percent of new zealanders who are currently like definitely not getting vaccinated and i think that's a direct result of some of the stuff that's happened in the u.s and spreading Mm. over here and that flyer was pretty scary to me because there's another 10 percent who are vaccine hesitant that flyer can push people over towards the no vaccine vaccine avenue
0: I would just add one thing that makes me sort of more optimistic about New Zealand is the fact of parliamentary supremacy, which I know can go either way. But if you assume a more public-interested sort of government that's trying to protect citizens from this kind of hate speech, they have uh, authority to regulate it because there's no uh, authoritative judicial review, right, that's binding. A declaration of inconsistency with the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act is just a, we don't like what you're doing from the judiciary and the parliament doesn't even have to respond. And to a lot of people, that's a threat to human rights. To others, it's uh, the possibility of good government uh, in the public interest, despite whack jobs and malicious actors.
1: Unless they get into office.
0: Unless they get into office. Um, (laughs) But the the other thing I'd add, though, is the the importance of good government addressing pressing public policy issues is greater than ever if we want things like hate speech and conspiracy theories not to evolve and multiply because, again, when people are feeling insecure, at risk, um, doing worse than they were before, at risk from problems they can't understand or or that are out of their control, like climate change or some of the geopolitical stuff that is so uh, overwhelming. Under those conditions, we are primed to recede back and believe in things that affirm our identity, our ego, explain the world simply and easily. So I, I do think the global social conditions are making hate speech and conspiracy theories more likely, but there are there is a greater ability of governments to, res- to respond to that here than in uh, First Amendment absolutist America. Yeah?
4: Um, first of all, maybe the panel and then, um, Danny, you kind of mentioned this with a bit of the psychology around conspiracy theories and why people believe them. And I think maybe Tim, you mentioned that people are no longer really, uh, like, with, They've always the same set of facts and over there because I believe one and the other thing. So I wondered whether the research talks much about how to maybe steer people away from conspiracy theories and get them back out of that. And then secondly, whether there's anything being done to try and
3: implement. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately the, the literature's kind of at its infancy at the moment. And we've just kind of identified these three factors, the existential, the um, epistemic, and the relational needs, that mm-hmm. really tie into mm-hmm. to what Tim's been talking about mm-hmm. as well. Um, and the, the real <clears throat> irony about it is this epistemic need that, that people are searching for, You know, they're wanting to understand the chaos around them, and they cling to these ideas that ironically make the world even more chaotic. Um, and, and so at the moment, the, the literature's kind of scratching their head at the moment, trying to figure out like, they're searching for this epistemic certainty, but it's just leading to further and further uh, questioning. Um, it's not satisfying people's needs, yet people are still going down this rabbit hole.
2: Could I add something to that list? I, I think that there's, and it's because I'm pretty cynical about these things, I think there's also the opportunistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't believe for a damn minute that these educated Republican legislators in Congress believe this stuff. I don't think Kevin McCarthy believes it. I don't, I don't think Elise Stefanik believes it. I think it's nonsense. I think they're using it. I think some percentage of the party does. But I think a vast majority of them are simply using it opportunistically, uh, in order to maintain their power and their base, which makes it, it an incredibly cynical manipulation. And their campaign uh, finance and their and their, and, their, and, their, and, their and and that and that is yeah. and that as well. So let's not underestimate the actual use and manipulation mm-hmm. of people by cynical political interests uh, in order to maintain uh, their own their own power. Yeah.
3: And, and in some ways, like Kevin McCartney tested the water immediately after the Capitol insurrection mm-hmm. and came out and was. Holding Trump accountable. And yeah. in the last right. couple months, he's realized that that's not a politically um, wise yeah. decision and he's rescinded that.
2: That's right. Anyone else? All right, well, that works out pretty well timing wise. Anything <laughs> to say from your part to wrap up? Or? No, I wanted no?
1: to ask a question. So oh, sorry. We're in any university,
5: perhaps yeah. to wrap up, what's the role of education in people not believing in? conspiracy theories. I mean on the one hand some of the anti-vaxxers seem very well educated unfortunately, so I just, you know, that's the last
1: question to end this. And look, you know, some very well educated people fell for those shock jocks too. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dad's a physics professor and he did for a while. Took a long time to peel him away. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and and it really changed him. It changed his personality. Too much Um,
3: physics and not enough history and politics. No,
1: I think people didn't realize, because we'd had the fairness doctrine for so long, so people would listen to the news. They didn't realize it had been repealed. So they thought they were still listening to the news. They still thought it was, you know, traditional news. He even said as much. I said, turn that Rush Limbaugh stuff down. He said, I want to hear the news. It's, It's... and people don't know what's going on underneath the surface, you know. They don't see the shift that's caused the content difference. So he, he believed it because he'd been a news junkie for ages.
2: But there is a real role for education to play because the, the surveys of the people from the last election showed that there was, you know, the, the, the higher levels of education that people had, the less likely they were to vote for Trump and fall for those things. So, you know, while it's true that there is not necessarily a perfect correlation... Uh, you hope that people, when they get more educated, more critical in their thinking mm. and more critical about where they get their sources of information from, uh, that that will lead us, you know, where we, where we want to go. Um,
1: there has to be a media literacy. Yeah. I do think that's a big, really important thing is the media literacy. Yeah. I think that's one point. of the most
2: important things that universities could teach is that media literacy. And also just political engagement. I mean, actual engagement with the, you know, values. Of you know a political system.
3: Just just kind of building on that as well. Like I think New Zealand desperately needs civics education. Oh, yeah.
1: that's I One hundred
2: percent. I made the same point. One
3: hundred percent agree. Yeah.
2: Absolutely.
1: So, a bit of a task for us here at the university. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think that's probably a really good note to end on. Um, I hope everyone will join me in thanking our wonderful panel. Thank you. Thank you.